Hi, and welcome to this special edition of the Heart to Heart Walk podcast. In these episodes, we get to hear from everyday people who've done extraordinary things and how sometimes that can be hard on them and their families, which is what this walk is really about. So get ready to hear some amazing stuff from amazing people. Okay, welcome to the Heart to Heart Walk podcast. This is another hot debrief episode. And today we are with Keith Banks, BMVA, all the way down in Melbourne in Milne Territory. G'day, Keith. G'day, Matt. Um, pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yeah. Thanks very much for coming on board. And uh, we're co-hosted again with Milne. G'day, Milne. G'day, Matt. And Keith, how you going? Yeah, very well, mate. It's actually a nice day in Melbourne for a change. <laughs> it's not raining, so it's good. Yeah, so far. So, Keith, you're... Uh, you're quite an identity in the in the podcast space. I know you've you've done a few other episodes around the place. However, I'd love to hear a bit more about your storyline and particularly your advocacy for mental health. But before we get that deep into your uh, your journey, could you just let us know a little bit about where you grew up and what you were like as a kid? Yeah, mate. Um, yeah, I grew up in Western Queensland, uh, in the country, in the bush. Um, oh, gee. And left uh, left home when I was the year I turned seventeen. So, um, uh, quick version or quick uh, summary: My mum had divorced my natural father when I was a baby. Um, she moved back to a little place called Tambo near Charleville, Augathella, Blackall. For those anybody who uh, who knows about Western Queensland, so we lived in Tambo f- until I think I was about six or so, and she remarried a uh, um, a man who was not very pleasant, um, had a drinking problem, a lot of domestic violence, a lot of mental and physical abuse. Um, so I grew up in that environment, unfortunately, for many years. Um, as a kid, I was pretty shy and uh, and I learned very quickly to walk in eggshells not to, so as not to incur his wrath for whatever reason. Not an uncommon story, unfortunately, in my generation, but uh, and, and for a long time, I actually thought it was pretty normal. Um, so... I was very, very lucky. I was academically bright, um, and from a young age, I realised that was my escape route, I suppose. So growing up, uh, went to a number of schools. Um, I th- I've lost count. I think there was something like 11 or 12 different schools in my primary years. Wow. Um, we settled in Charters Towers uh, for the last three years of my schooling, and uh, I was lucky enough to pick up a scholarship, a Commonwealth scholarship, which enabled me to attend a local private school as a day student. Um, did all of that. And uh, and my my original intention actually was to uh, apply for an officer training um, course, I suppose, in Duntroon, which is, what now, which is now the um, Australian Defence Force Academy. But unfortunately, I couldn't stay in that home environment for one more year. Um, and I'd always, I'd always wanted to do something to help and assist people and protect them from predators and bullies. And uh, and there I was at school one day. A police recruiter turned up and uh, informed us that if we were successful in applying, we could actually do years eleven and twelve at the academy and then be sworn after that. Oh, so I was right. in year eleven at the time I applied. I was accepted and uh, and moved to Brisbane at the tender age of 
16 years and bloody nine months or something um, to go to the police academy. Wow. Gee, I tell you, look, that's uh, that would be a daunting a daunting thing for someone that age, but also I've, I've no doubt your mum to see, uh, you know, to see you off uh, from from that far away too, you know, like it's not like you're just down the road or anything. Yeah. What a, uh, yeah, what a. Yeah, look, um, wow. I, I didn't probably realise the emotional impact it had on her mate until I had kids of my own. Um, yeah, right. For me, it was an escape. For me, it was literally escaping from an environment that I just couldn't be part of. I just you know, I didn't want to be part of, couldn't be part of anymore. Yep. He'd, he'd stopped bashing me probably the year before because I was getting a bit bigger. And um, and not that I could fight particularly well, but I'd started martial arts as a at a local judo club, I think. So I think he realised that the days of, of shoving me around were probably coming to an end, um, but he was still quite violent towards my mother. Um um, without going into many details, there was a, a blow up one night where you know he promised faithfully it'd never happen again, which and we've all seen mm. that, Milne. We've seen yeah, that exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for me, it was probably survival's a strong word, but certainly emotionally, um, for me, it was a survival tactic to get the hell out and yeah, create right. my own life. So, but daunting, yeah. But uh, but as I've written in in my first book, getting to the academy, I had my own room. I'd never had my own room. Yeah, um, okay. And I thought it was brilliant, and uh, and some of my a lot of my colleagues were whinging about the fact that um, you know it had a single bed and um, <laughs> a study desk, etc. I was going, man, this is gold. <laughs> you know, so it's all about rel- it's all about relativity. Were you in a on a farm out in Western Queensland or in town out there? No, no. My stepfather was an unskilled labourer, so we we went from town to town wherever the work was. I think yeah, okay. most we stayed in a place was Mount Isa for. Four years when he was working on the mines. Yeah, yeah. right. Wow. Well, I've got no doubt that sort of shaped you as a, you know, as an adult, and undoubtedly is is your pathway into something you're still doing now in the in the uh, martial arts space. But um, yeah, gee, yeah, wow, that's a that's a tough start. Yeah. That's a tough start. Yeah, we'll talk about that later in the podcast about mental health, mate, because I've realised that I, I've actually. Um, I had a massive amount of trauma as a child. I'd never yeah. understood I had until I started doing my own therapy. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I, absolutely. Yeah, did they yeah. take many kids that age? Uh, they did, mate. Yeah. So I was actually, oh God, that was year twelve. So that was second year. They actually yeah. took kids um, after year ten. So yeah. the cadet system was year eleven, twelve, and then another twelve months of training. Then when you graduated after that period of time, you had to wait until you turned 19 to be sworn in. So, What was your normal day as a cadet? Like what? Uh, there was a lot of screaming. <laughs> <laughs> so so if, if you think back to year 12, you know, so we had the year 12 subjects. Um, you'd, God, you'd wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning, um, make your bed, make sure that it was, you know, made to regulation. We had a, uh, a drill sergeant there who was an Irish guy, Tom Murphy, who frightened the bejesus out of us. Um, big, screaming, white-haired Irish guy that hated cadets <laughs> um, because there was a, an adult stream of training as well, but the cadet system, he just hated it. And, uh, and he'd do room inspection most mornings. He'd always find something wrong with your room. You'd be doing push-ups and, and so on before parade. So you'd go through that, um, have breakfast, have the morning parade, we're all lined up in formation, then turn around and march to your classrooms, do your normal schooling. And I think 
from memory, there were probably two sessions a day of PT. Yeah, um, yeah right. So I, I'd gone in there. I wasn't very fit at all. I was never a sports guy. Had started doing judo, but, you know, I was more focused on my school results to get to enable me, as I keep saying, yeah. to have an yeah. escape route. Um, but, God, I, I, I got fit very, very quickly and because uh, they ran us around the academy. They, you know, push-ups, sit-ups, running, calisthenics, whatever, well, whatever they, they, the right term was, um, karate training, judo training, self-defence training, um, and then back into the classroom, back in your uniform and in the classroom and finish your studies for the day. Then we had um, at night, I haven't thought about this for a while actually, we had uh, the doors had to remain open. They couldn't be closed in your bedroom because randomly um, constables who were assigned to the academy would come down, come around and walk straight in and make sure you were studying and not listen to the radio. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty full on. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's a fair, that's a pretty uh, pretty pretty tough environment for a kid of that age, you know. Like I think how how uh, brittle I would have been at that ripe old age at school, and uh, yeah, wow, that's a that's a that's a tough start. Yeah, yeah. Look, it wasn't pleasant. Um, I I was bullied mercilessly by a couple of clowns who were uh, rugby league players who were in my yeah. year, and uh, and I've written about him in the book, Wayne Bennett, <laughs> who's now a notorious or famous or whatever yeah. term you want to use, football coach, was a physical training instructor at the academy. And, uh, and he loved cadets who played rugby league and he, he yeah. appeared to me to hate everybody else who didn't. So there was a cohort of his, his football players who were allowed to really run rampant across the academy and we're all living in and, yeah, they, they were bullies. And they yeah. focused on young kids like me who didn't have a lot of confidence. And it's the classic bully syndrome. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, uh, that, you know, went on for a while and, and it really just encouraged me to train harder um yep. so I, re- I ran into one of these blokes a little while ago in brisbane and we had a conversation and uh and he said <laughs> he said oh, i'd never do it now apparently you can fight i said yeah it, it wouldn't end well for you my friend <laughs> um, so <laughs> there's nothing like a little tiny bit of catch-up is there Milne? no exactly <laughs> right bit of payback but no look i didn't find it that daunting matt to be honest mate i um right. I, I loved it. I loved the routine. I loved the fact that I was being paid. Um, you know, the and, and I just looked at it as similar to what I would have gone through in the uh, in the mili- in the Duntrian Academy. And I had a um, an end goal, and that was to be a cop. It's funny you you do, you do often. That is a very common story with cops, isn't it? That they toyed with the idea of do I go down the military line? Do I do I join the cops? Like that's a very similar story and it's amazing how many military people I speak to that have got the exact inverse of that same discussion in their heads at that time. You know, do I join the yeah. police? Do I, you know, fire brigade or, you know, and obviously yeah. they, they go down the military line. So there's, there's something that draws people, you know, in that direction and they go one way or the other usually or, or moonlight in moonlight as reserves and things. But, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so where would you end up first? Yeah. Okay, so I did three years in the academy. Um, I did some graduate cadet work in a uniform station waiting to turn 19. Turned 19, got sworn in, all fantastic. I thought I'd be out there fighting crime and evil. And uh, <laughs> and I was posted to an inner suburban station called Barden. <laughs> and uh, it was the quietest, sleepiest place in Brisbane, I reckon. And um, my first, God, literally my first day, the sergeant said, okay, welcome, you know, um, didn't have lockers or anything in those days, just put your stuff down there, here's the keys to the car, drive down to whatever street, 
we need you to stand on the uh, the pedestrian crossing and make sure the school kids get across safely. Oh. I went, oh, goody. Um, <laughs> Quality job. <laughs> so so it, wasn't, it wasn't like Mount Thomas then. No, mate, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't like Logan or anything in, in Brisbane. It was just boring as a proverbial. And um, I think I was there for a couple of months, then went to the beat. But during that couple of months, my first um, probably exposure to a massive adrenaline dump and fear, uh, went to a domestic disturbance, and I didn't carry a gun. You didn't, you didn't have to carry a firearm in those days. And I was weighing up whether to do it or not. You know, growing up in the bush, I'd never seen coppers with guns. Um, so anyway, I went to a domestic, knocked on the door and uh, a guy put a Winchester 12 gauge pump action shotgun in my face. And, uh, unfortunately my offside had a revolver with him. He put his revolver to this guy's head and nothing eventuated except, you know, my whole, holy hell, (laughs) um, fear, alarm moment. The, um, the first thing that went through my mind was I've only had sex with one girl and I'm going to die. So it, it, it probably formed uh, a bit of the rest of my life as well. <laughs> yeah, wow. So how long have you been in the job at that point in time when that happened? I th- mate, I think probably seven or eight weeks. Oh, wow. shit. Mm. Wow. So That's the next a, thing uh... I did the very next morning was to sit down at the old typewriter and type out a um, an original and six carbon copies application for a firearm. <laughs> yeah. You actually had to apply for one, did you? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Because it was, it was not mandatory. It was just... You know, and in those days, it was pretty wild west, mate. There, there were coppers who had bought their own uh, handguns. I think that, that started in the 60s or something. So you had we had we had one guy with a, a nine-inch barrel Luger that I think had oh, been yeah. confiscated. That was his on-duty weapon. <laughs> and they, they'd really started to get rid of all that and move to Smith & Wesson 38 five-shot uh, revolvers. But... You know, he had to apply for it, and I think that was a, a, a phase that took maybe three years to implement. Yeah, yeah, I know. Like in the NT, they still had the same. Like they didn't carry firearms. They used to store them in the glove box of their cars, and like if they need, they just you know pull yeah. them out then. So they never yeah. walked yeah. around with them. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's that's in about seventy five, seventy six. Is that a, is that about? Uh, I was sworn in in seventy seven. So yeah, seventy seven. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and what you the, the the revolver came with a flap over holster with a little buckle on it. Um, yeah. And you were permitted to wear it on your trouser belt. There was no utility belts in those days. Um, and if you wore it, it was still not frowned upon, but it was unusual. Wow. Geez, that wasn't the case in New South Wales even mm. back then. You know, like that's um. Oh, I didn't actually know that. No. There you go. No, New South Wales cops. The weapon's been part of their uniform forever. Yeah, I absolutely. think they actually get sworn in with it. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I certainly. Yeah, like, that was the, absolutely the process when I went through, and I'm pretty sure because my old man was in the cops as well, and I'm pretty sure it was exactly the same. Um, same, same yeah. old guns, the old yeah. old thirty eight special six shooter. Yeah, yeah. Now, suffice to say, after my experience there, mate, I never went anywhere without one again. No, I was going to say. Yeah. Is, do you reckon, um, just knowing a little bit about your storyline, do you think that drew you to the tactical side of police work or is that is that something that um, you think shaped that direction in your career? No, probably not that experience, mate. I, I always wanted to be, look, you know, when you're 19 you want to change the world and, <laughs> and I always wanted to be a super cop. I wanted to be at the sharp end of everything. 
So started with volunteering for undercover. You know, I spent um, nearly two years deep undercover, and that was that was exciting, exhilarating, and um, just it, it filled me with a thirst for adrenaline. So right. the next thing when I got out of undercover, I went back to uniform because apparently we needed discipline. Probably right. Um, <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and I realised there was a tactical unit. It was called the Emergency Squad in those days. It was um, based on the New South Wales model. Um, right the old emergency squad down there that became the SWAS. So applied for it, joined it, was part-time um, and because I wanted to do something that was exciting. I, I, I look back on it now with my mental health journey and go, Yo, I was absolutely addicted to adrenaline for sure. Yeah, right. um, and, and the danger part didn't factor into the equation. It was just I wanted to be in the forefront in the middle of everything. That that may well have come from my childhood. I may have been trying to prove myself to someone who didn't really care anyway. Um, you know, you get into the psychological component of, uh, of motivation. But for me, it was adventure. Tell us a bit about the undercover life. What was that like? Um, the, the, and again, in hindsight, see, I, I always thought that I, I left undercover fairly unscathed emotionally and mentally, but I now realise that wasn't the case because it completely changed who I was. I didn't drink. I didn't, I'd certainly never smoked a cigarette, never touched drugs in my life, of course trained five days a week at least in, in a Taekwondo uh, discipline in those days and uh, volunteered for undercover. Within three months, I was um, having the occasional cigarette. I was drinking. Um, yeah, I was drinking <laughs> and, yeah, right. uh, and, and smoking weed with, uh, with dealers in bikey clubhouses or car parks or houses or whatever. So it completely changed my life. And I'll get back to your question in a minute, mate, but at the end of it, given, you know, my, my passion is about mental health, as is yours. And I look back on those days now, it made me rebellious. It made me cynical, jaded, distrusting, because I was working in an environment in those days where a fair few Queensland police were on the take. Yeah. Um, and certainly some of the drug squad were selling as much gear as we were taking off the street. So it, it changed my lens of life and how I looked at life um, how I trusted people, etc., pretty dynamically or pretty significantly. But doing the job itself, um, it, it was exhilarating. And again, you can see a thread there. Yeah. It was a rush. It was frightening, um, you know, sitting without backup and support. And, and often, you know, three or four drug dealers, um, no, there was no surveillance. There was no listening device. It was just you just sat, you, wow. you were in that world, living in that world. And it could have been in a pub, it could have been in a house, it could have been somewhere else. But living in that world, um, surviving by your wits. Now, I, I often carried a firearm. I had a small a small automatic um, where, when I could. But you can imagine, mate, in Brisbane in the stinking humidity, et cetera, there yeah. weren't too many places to conceal a gun. <laughs> um, you know, so I'd, I'd have a shoulder bag or something as I, I variously posed as either a, a street dealer or a street user. Um, ultimately, I learned my trade fairly quickly, probably in the first six months, and I bought a hell of a lot of heroin because I could understand the profit margins and, and so on. So I had my own, as far as the cover was concerned, I had my own market and I was always looking for better quality smack. So I, I preferred that because that was more business than socialising. But the danger was with undercover, not danger was being recognised, absolutely. The danger yeah. was having your cover blown for sure because that could have resulted in severe beating or worse. Yeah. But the other danger that people don't realise is that 
carrying cash, you're always at risk of being ripped off by other dealers. Dealers, yeah. And that was that was the worry, you know. Right. Um, there's a song called Smuggler's Blues that Glenn Fry from the Eagles wrote and there's a line in there that we loved or I loved which was you've got to carry weapons because you always carry cash. Yeah. Um, yeah, right. But having said all that, what a buzz. You know, no rules. <laughs> wow. <laughs> no, <Yeah>. no haircuts. <laughs> no, you could just act as you wanted and – and if you think about it, my I was 22 years old. My cohorts were around that age, maybe a year or two older. So we had no supervision. We had access to a lot of cash, access yeah. to as much pot as you wanted, um, and false number plates, false identities. What could go wrong, really? <laughs> exactly. What could go wrong? <laughs> a lot did go wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but you know, I was just going to say, Banksy, you've written about the one um, uh, drug deal in, in Cairns, mm. and obviously that one sort of rattled you a little bit. Um, well, it rattled me in hindsight. Yeah. Um, when I found back. out that he was planning to kill me, and I was planning to uh, have him pinched. Yeah. And and the thing was, we got on very well. So, what what I, what I thought about, I've only thought about in the last few years, is I was playing a role to set up a 100-pound drug deal, and he was playing a role to make me believe that the deal was going to go ahead. Now, all the time he was planning to blow my head off and take the money. Wow. And and it probably rattles me more now than it did then. At mm. the time, I just went, oh, quick. <laughs> I thought, well, mate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thanks for that. Um, <laughs> but but that's, that's a real, that was a real danger of undercover work, yeah. And, yeah. and that one I was working with a partner, um, and Larry and I, you know, lived in the same place, so we had each other's backs. But often, undercovers were just working by themselves. So anything could have happened, and in the days before pages and mobile phones, they might have found a body somewhere, you know, near Coranda, yeah. and gone, oh, oh, shit, it's Banksy. We wondered where he was. Um, <laughs> so it was, it was pretty wild with stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I'm imagining the, uh, yeah, the rule books were pretty loose back in those days, but I, um, yeah, I did... <laughs> Yeah, the the uh, the bad old days of policing. I, I think, um, unfortunately, when I joined up, I joined in the middle of the royal commission that was uh, trying to sort out mm. New South Wales, and um, yeah, so it come from similar lines, no doubt. And uh, yeah, 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 lots of well known, lots of well known bad stories, unfortunately. But um, yes, there are. Yeah. Tell us about the transition out of out of the UC world to um, yeah. What did you do after that? Um, well, yeah. Again, it's it's one of the things that the job didn't do well. You know, my my mates and I have talked about this a lot. I literally bought. I think it was about a half an ounce of heroin one afternoon, and the very next morning, I was in my uniform, wearing a tracksuit top, going to a hairdresser to get all my hair cut off, and uh, and go straight back to uniform patrol. Wow. So, and I remember literally sitting there thinking, how the hell do I book on the air again? You know, and, and, and changing from an entire netherworld existence to wearing a uniform and a gun belt and going to traffic accidents and, you know, people saying their garden name had been stolen or something. Um, <laughs> that, that was a pretty amazing transition. Yeah. So, and, and I was back in mobile patrols where, where I'd loved, I'd loved working in it before I went undercover. But when I came back, I, I was just a changed guy. Um, 
so I applied for the CIB and, and got in that. Uh, I think I went there about six or eight months, maybe six months later. Worked in some uh, some training areas, then a couple of squads, the Breakinator squad, back to the drug squad. Um, and then I got flicked from the drug squad because I wouldn't agree to uh, I wouldn't agree to do a report for a monetary reward for an informer because the informer had given up one of my undercovers. I still believe to this day the pressure I was getting to put the report through was so that the particular detective running the informant or the informer um, <laughs> was splitting the money with him. Yeah. So I just said I refused to do it and I found myself on a secondment to a suburban station, which apparently was permanent. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I went to a suburban CIB station and loved it. It was the best thing that could happen to me. Um but in that time, I was still a part-time member of the emergency squad that was that was evolving into the, into a tactical unit, and uh, got an approach. After it was, we went on annual training camps again, like the Sydney model. Go to annual training camp, and I think the TRG in the Northern Territory was the same in those days. Paul was part-time, yeah. so we'd go to an annual training camp. Uh, we were starting to get the SASR traveling around to train us in close quarter combat, close yeah, quarter right. battle, we called it then, and uh, and things were really picking up. The inspector in charge um, got me aside after the training camp and uh, and offered me an opportunity to come on full-time, so I jumped at it, um, became one of the first full-time members of the TRG, Tactic Response Group, as it was called then, uh, which evolved into SWAS, which evolved, and I left when it became SWAS, um, went back to the BCI2, surveillance and covert. Um, but in the tactical field, I loved it and uh, was sent over to do the SAS Counter-Terrorist Instructors course in Perth. Did a bomb disposal course in uh, Bandiana, um, intel courses around the country, aircraft assault course, so an anti-aircraft um, hijacking course in Sydney with the Sydney SWAS guys. Loved it all. Um, and what broke me was we uh, were involved in a, in a raid in July 1987, the 29th. Had to, we entered a house looking for number one most wanted, executed a warrant, it's a long story, but essentially the least riskiest uh, option we had was to raid the house. This guy had murdered two people or shot two people in cold blood. He was just a piece of work. Um, went into the house, weren't permitted by force command to use what I wanted to use, which was tear gas and distraction grenades for whatever reason. Um, it was the same week that our corruption inquiry had started. And, and I firmly believe that they were too concerned with trying to get the headlines of corruption off the front page because it was all starting to take take uh, effect. Yeah, right. Uh, and they wanted another headline and they didn't want to have tear gas and distraction grenades used because it might have been too offensive or something. Yeah. So the headline they ended up with, unfortunately, and very sadly, was police officer murdered in raid. This guy opened up, opened fire on us at close quarters. He killed uh, or shot Peter, my friend, five times um, in the torso. Shot Steve once in the torso and two of us killed him. Um, and the that that day, that event, that morning, just sent me into a spiral of depression and PTSD and I just didn't know what it was because I had survivor guilt, I understand that now. Um, yeah. I couldn't talk about it without bursting into tears. I had anger, hypervigilance, alcohol, um, you know, you name it, and yeah. uh, and there was no support at all. There was no counselling. There was nothing. We we did the job. Um, Pete, I was holding Pete uh, while he was dying in, in in the corner of the bedroom, 
um, until the ambos arrived and he died, I think, two hours later um, in hospital. And it just, I, I took, um, because I was part of the planning process and because I was the team leader of the assault group um, and we all chose who went in first. We all wanted to go first through the door. We're all alpha males. Yeah. And yeah. Pete, uh, Pete insisted and I I, I remember I, I challenged him. I said, okay, mate, if you can outshoot me, um, you can be first in. And he outshot me, which really, <laughs> you know, even to this day I go, you bastard. Um, and uh, and it all just went pear-shaped. We we didn't have the equipment that guys have now. Um, the vest we were wearing were level two resistant vest, which meant they could only really stop pistol fire and a shotgun. Rifle rounds went straight through them. Yeah, um, okay. And ironically, and again, this added to my anger and probably my PTSD, that uh, Pete had put a report in. He was another full-timer. He'd put a report to the department recommending urgent upgrading of those vests and they knocked it back because of budget. And after he was killed and it hit the media, they suddenly found the budget. You know, oh, so God. It's just such really a, well. it's a um, bloody horrible circumstance. Yeah. And I just, you know, I went through and I didn't know what it was. I, I thought it was just happening to me. You know, the anger, the shock, or the shock, of course, um, mm. yeah, the yeah. the sleeplessness, the flashbacks, the hypervigilance. I remember thinking, God, I'm I'm checking doors and windows six times in a row, yeah. you know, and and my and I used to be a, a very very heavy sleep, like as a, a normal sleeper, I'd drift off in thirty seconds, sleep beautifully through the night, wake up refreshed. I was now sleeping, waking at the sound of everything, um, like. Drinking, God, you know, drinking almost to to blackout stage to get to sleep. And then to compound it within, I think, again, maybe four weeks or so, uh, the other shooter and I were called into the boss's office and he said, look, we've got credible information from Sydney that um, this piece of works, I don't even like saying his name, this grubs uh, de facto has um, put together a lot of money from the armed robberies they were doing together and basically there's a contract on both your heads. I went, wow. And, uh, and my immediate response was bring it on. You know, I'll shoot mm-hmm. another one of you. And, and in that alpha male response, of course. But the only um, support we got from the department was we were allowed to carry our weapons off duty for as long as we needed to. There was no security checking of the house. There was no let's move you to a safe house, none of that. No, no, okay, no. guys, uh, you can carry your guns and good luck. Good luck. Jeez. Mm-hmm. So. And then not so long after that, because um, that, that I had the 9mm pistol and that was part of my life. It seemed I carried it everywhere. And uh, and I my, my partner at the time was working advertising. She was a cute little blonde and she was an advertising girl and she was out at some function um, this particular night. And I, I drank every night, as I said. I might, have, I might have worked my way through the better part of two-thirds of a bottle of scotch over a few hours. And I had the weapon with me all the time. So I was sitting on a couch looking out the window. Um, lights turned off, you know, just, wow. Mm. And um, and I remember sitting there thinking, I wonder what Kitty thought or I wonder what he felt when he was when he was dying. And in that strange darkness, I, I picked the weapon up and wrapped around into the, um, wrapped around into the, into the chamber turned it around, put it in my mouth, slipped the safety off, and I just sat there with my thumb on the on the trigger thinking, all I've got to do is squeeze this and I'll find out what the guys know, you know, is their life after death essentially. Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, it'll make the pain go away because I just had so much pain. 
And what stopped me from squeezing the trigger was I had a, a flashback to a suicide I'd gone to where a guy killed himself with a three hundred three rifle, and, and you both know what that's like, the whole yeah. top of the head goes and brain splatter yeah. and stuff. And, uh, and I remember thinking, shit, if I do this, she'll come home and find it, and that would be a horrible thing for her to go through. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't about me being afraid of killing myself. It was the impact on her. And yeah. when I had that little second or two of clarity, I thought, what the hell am I doing? Took the weapon, <laughs> unloaded it, stripped it, put the, the frame in one part of the house, the slide in another, the magazine in another. And I woke up the next morning and thought, I've got some real problems. But I didn't know who I could talk to. Yeah. And and this is this is where my whole passion exists now. You know, it's um we as an alpha male, I couldn't tell anybody I was suicidal because I would have been kicked off the team, and rightly so. I didn't want to yeah. do that. I wanted to be in that group on every single job there was where there was an opportunity to blow someone's head off because I wanted to kill as many crooks as I could. Now, um, rightly or wrongly, that's the way I thought at the time. And and I was in another shooting uh, almost a year later where I realised that I was, I'd be looking forward to it and that the whole dark side of me was starting to, was threatening to take over the good side, the nice side. So that's why I, le- I, I then left, I, I went to surveillance. But all through that time, I knew I had problems. I remember I went to my GP, I needed some time off and, uh, and I walked in and started crying, I couldn't stop. And he gave me two weeks sick leave and a particular senior officer um, who, yeah, he's, he's, he's deceased now, which is, gee, what a shame. Um, he was a complete asshole. He um, hated what we were doing, thought we were all cowboys, um, took a particular dislike to me because I'd become really outspoken and challenged, you know, all the crap that I could see that was happening. Yeah. Um, and he, he actually rang my boss and demanded to know why I was on sick leave. Wow. And my boss, who was a good guy, rang me and said, mate, you know, he wants to know. And I said, well, you can imagine the, the expletives I was using. Yeah. Um, and completely inappropriate. You know, any organisation now, if you have a sick leave certificate from your doctor, it's none of their damn business what it's for. But he was just looking to try and get something on me, I suspect. And that added to my anger and, and so on as well. Um, and just as I say, the, the classic, just the classic symptoms. And I, I didn't realise what... None of us knew what PTSD was in the 80s. I, yeah, think, it was, yeah. I, I think the no, Americans no. were starting to use the term maybe in the mid-80s. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was a pretty pretty challenging and tough and lonely time. Yeah. They still look back at World War II, didn't they, with the shell shock and stuff like that. So well, the shell shock in World War One, combat fatigue in World War II. Um, yeah. I don't know what they coined in the Vietnam era, um, but they, they were starting to see some reactions particularly with yeah it was returned servicemen from vietnam and there were studies being done on on all of the symptoms that that i'm talking about and and that we understand um and it wasn't until i was doing an undergrad degree part-time because after our corruption inquiry i think a bit like new south wales you know they they um they being force commander whoever determined that if a cop didn't have a university degree then they probably didn't belong in the job so they had to learn really important stuff Mm whatever that was. Um, <laughs> and I, I was doing some research in the library when I was doing an assignment one day reading US police journals and I came across a list of these symptoms and thinking, that's me. Wow, that's exactly what I'm um, what I'm going through. And and that's when they were starting to coin post-traumatic stress impacts. 
And that, that was really, you know, my part of my recovery was understanding I wasn't alone and doing mm. my own research. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, that's, um, yeah, I, I think it, uh, like I found a lot of comfort in listening to other people's stories for sure that had been through, you know, whatever, whatever their, their storyline was, but listening to the symptoms they were suffering on and or struggling with, I guess, brought me a lot of, uh, I call it validation. I don't think that's the right word, but, um, oh. you know. Yeah, no, I reckon it is, mate. I reckon yeah. it is. And that's that's literally what how the podcast stuff, you know, just drew me in because there's so mm. many, you know, you've got access to all these different stories and people like yourself that are prepared to talk about it. And, um, yeah, it's sort of, and I'm sure I'm not the only one doing that. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah, look, I, I think it's important, Matt. Um, it, and, and sorry, Milne, I'm, I'm taking over the platform. But, um <laughs> I have such a passionate, uh, such a passion about about conversation, and you know when and, and I do some presentations for corporates from time to time, and I talk about this, and and for me the key is being able to tell someone openly and genuinely what you're going through, and 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 a mate, and and on the other side of the coin, the mates that you're talking to need to listen and shut up and listen without judgment, you know, mm. and and. If I'd been able to talk to someone years before, like I do now, my recovery would have happened twenty years before it did. Mm. Easily, totally. Mm. So post that sort of, um, you know, you recognizing that in in retrospect now about you going through those those issues. I'm assuming career wise, you just worked through it and just kept kept on turning up and hiding it all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, mate. I had, I had the facade. I was the I was the party guy. You know, I was the fun guy. I was the one you wanted to be with in a hot job because I knew exactly what I was doing. Um, you know, I was kicking indoors, loving it, um, training my my teams I was working with. So I went, <clears throat> excuse me, from um, tactical into covert surveillance and intel. I worked in bikey gangs and a strategic intel basis nationally, all that stuff. Um, and I had this whole facade of the alpha male tough guy, yeah? Yeah. Um, and... Uh, Anywhere I could get my hands on a shoddy, so you know I'd be the first one with the shoddy, etc. And then off duty, yeah, come and have a drink with Banksy. He's a guy who likes to party, you know. He's funny, he's engaging, and all of the time, all behind both of those facades, I had major crippling anxiety. You know, I had, I had, um, God, a sense of I had the whole imposter syndrome going on nicely. I had that sense of self worth which was minimal. I, you know, every single day I thought about Kitty in that room being shot. I thought about him dying. And um, it just, it almost crippled me emotionally. And what it did was it created a desire in me to um, be the first guy at a hard job. Yeah. So MLC building siege I've written about, um, uh, God, it was 93, I think. So I've been running a covert operation. There's a shots fired call centre of the city and uh, a guy walked into one of the major landmarks in the, in the CBD, fired a couple of shots. So I was supposed to not respond to anything because I was in, you know, a polo shirt, jeans, hair was a bit longer. Oh, yeah, shirt. of course. And uh, so I responded, of course, <laughs> and, uh, and got there, formed a cordon, raced up the stairs and, uh, and found myself face-to-face with a guy with a box full of gel ignite, a rifle, army webbing that I found out later had a hand grenade in it. And 
and I raced up there in full tactical mode. I was going to shoot him, you know, three to the chest, two to the head, whatever it took. Um, and for some reason, he said, why don't you come and talk to me? And I took a couple of steps inside and, uh, and spent an hour and a half with him. Wow. And, and what I saw then was a guy going through exactly what I was going through. Right. And, and wow. During our chat, it, it, it became evident, or he told me, he was a veteran. He was a Vietnam veteran. He'd been an army engineer, which meant he knew how to put a bomb together. So there were 16 sticks of gel ignite with three electronic debts wired to a 12-volt battery ready to go without a problem. And I knew I could see it because I'd been bomb trained. He had the rifle um, and then later, as I say, the hand grenade. But he he had the same stuff. He was up and down. He was happy. Then he was angry. Then he was suicidal. Then he was homicidal all through that hour and a half, you know. And and someone asked me uh, recently on another podcast, what was the proudest time of my career? Um, was it when I was awarded my medals? Was it if I did whatever? And I said, no, actually, the proudest time of my career was when I talked him out of killing himself and me. Because yeah, right. when um, I gave evidence to the committal, the committal for the trial, he stopped me on the way out after I'd given evidence in the box, and, and I, I said how I genuinely believed he he was he was badly affected um, mentally and emotionally. And as I'm walking past the dock, he put he stopped, put his hand out, and said, "I just want to say thanks for saving my life, brother." Right. That yeah. meant a lot to me. Yeah. And I think that actually started me thinking or changing my dark, almost murderous, <laughs> but certainly my dark um, side into finding some lightness in my in my soul again as as strange as that sounds yeah well and it's it's sort of i i can see why people find it hard to understand when like you you look back at yourself and see how crippled with anxiety that you were and i think that's Mm. a pretty profound like that's a very common symptom for ptsd sufferers but it, Mm. it doesn't it doesn't match with the alpha male you know running in there you know, almost like literally carelessly uh, to confront somebody with, you know, with the intentions that you probably had at the time. But someone that's riddled with anxiety, you would you would just presume would be crippled by that and not be able to function. So it's mm. sort of, it's a weird, it, it's a really complex uh, headspace, isn't it? Like when you, yeah. when you, when you yeah, break it, it down. It is, mate. And, um, and, and, and you're right. You know, I, I can't explain it, whether it was, you know, the need to continually prove to myself that I wasn't um, that helpless little kid again. I I honestly don't know. I've I've gone through this with my shrink and and she's helped me understand that, you know, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, I've got what I call the double tap, childhood PTSD and then then organisational PTSD. Yeah. Um, So... um, yeah, I honestly don't know. I just do remember I had for years, and it happened shortly after Kitty was murdered, um, I actually physically had pain in my stomach mm. that I now know was anxiety, mm. and it stayed there for years, literally years, even after I left the cops. I mean, I went into into the corporate world, which, let me tell you, is a mire of toxic. <laughs> oh, oh, man. <laughs> Judge, you think the politics and the cops are bad? Oh, right. Um, but so it, it was there forever. It was there, you know, and I just got used to it. I thought that was what life was like. I thought it was normal. Yeah. Um, 
and and the cops you know i i didn't realize how badly i was broken until i resigned right and that was one of the hardest things i ever did was was yeah. resigning from a job i thought i'd be in for life mm. that i knew yeah, if i a, stayed it's a tough it, moment right? isn't it yeah, yeah i look my role models were three times divorced alcoholics um yeah dying early after they retired all that sort of stuff and i thought wow yeah. you know i've got to i've got to break this cycle somehow but god it was a tough choice yeah well that's they're, they're all the things this walks about aren't they the, um, yeah. you know everything that you're talking about is what why this thing's even happening so um yeah. yeah, but actually, I, I, I'm hearing you about the the pains and things because I I know before I you know really was you know got really unwell. Um, I ended up having CT scans and all sorts of things because I mm. the the pains that were in my abdomen and and other places were you know crippling, uh, and I didn't yeah. know what was going on. And I was yeah. you know turning up to work every day. I even had uh, blood vessels burst in my left eye from uh, they they. I don't know that they still pinpointed exactly what it was, but that's the sort of stress my body physically was under wow. as I was unraveling. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's not a good thing and it's not just in your head. <laughs> no. It starts, it starts yeah, affecting what, your whole body when it gets yeah. bad. Yeah. Well, that's why it's called disease, mate. It's dis-ease, you know. Yeah. And there's so much, so many studies now that will show that, that trauma creates, drops the body, body's ability to fight it and actually – um, creates disease so yeah, it's just right. yeah it's amazing that yeah. the impact the body sorry the mind has on the body isn't it and oh. and i bet you thought you were by you were alone in that as well matt oh, oh absolutely i'd yeah. been on my own i'd been battling on my own in silence for years when i look mm. back at it and um yeah. didn't understand most of what was going on i didn't get it and uh and it's not only it's like like yourself it's not until now i actually understand it i don't think because i've mm. You know, all the therapies, all of the things that I've been through and all of the, you know, research, as you said, all the things that I've learned along the way, you look back and go, holy hell, like that's so obvious now. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, you know, when you're, when you're in it, you, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, I, I would have done anything to stay on the truck, you know, would have lied, stolen, hidden, whatever, <laughs> you yeah. know, virtually yeah. to, to keep operational and, and, and mask what was going on behind the scenes just to keep doing that thing I loved. Yeah, because uh, yeah, that gave you that gave you a sense of purpose during the yeah. shift that yeah. you weren't getting in your downtime because you were just battling with everything else. Yeah. So that that you know, go to work, oh mate, it's going to be exciting, it'll be fun, makes you feel alive, and then the sixteen hours between shifts, you're going, oh, okay, is this it? Right. Oh, yeah. oh, I'm back at work again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I know lived experience Australia, they did a. Um, some research on loneliness, like with mental health and PTSD and that sort of mm. thing. And it's so true. Like, as you said, like you just feel so alone um, and you're caught up in your head almost every hour of the day and there's nothing else and no one else knows what you're going through. So you're always going to feel alone because you're battling this alone. Yeah. And as you say, many people don't search for um, help because obviously um, they feel the guilt or the shame of um, speaking up. Yeah, you know, just getting yeah. that courage to speak up is obviously you know what we always want people to do because as I said, we, we're not alone. There's so many people out there that can help us now. Yeah, absolutely right, and uh, and and that's the problem of being an alpha male. You know, you you hit it on the head, mate. It's it's shameful in your mind 
mm. to admit that you're you're affected. It's it's and yet when you finally do, in my my experience, the support's been amazing. Mm-hmm. And, Definitely. And you go, wow, God, I wish I'd done this a long time ago. Um, but I guess that's the benefit of people like us. You know, there'll, there'll yeah. be people out here listening to this out there listening to this podcast, and certainly other podcasts where similar conversations are had, and thinking, wow, I'm not alone in imagining the, or I'm not imagining it, I'm not alone in feeling it. <clears throat> then hopefully it encourages them to reach out. Yeah, definitely, yeah, absolutely. Actually, I did notice uh, one of your. I can't remember where I read it now, but your reference to depression not being it's it's not always that person sitting in a dark room, you mm. know, uh hiding. That that's not how depression presents itself in, you know, people like us. It's not yep. you know <laughs> you don't no. allow it. You you won't let it. And I know yeah. it's an interesting way to put it that it's um mm. not always about like, sitting in dark rooms crying. It's often about going to work, doing your stuff, being jovial and happy and then coming home. I think we're very good at camouflaging um, the way we look. Um, Mm. We're obviously worried about our self-appearance to other people. So we protect ourselves by putting up this barrier saying, well, I've got all this stuff going on internally. I don't want anyone else to know what's going on because, as I said, you you feel shameful and you think you're letting people down because you're going through all this sort of stuff. It's like, well, I need to protect myself. So if I just keep being jovial, being happy and no one's going to know and yeah. that's the thing like you can see someone smiling but inside they could be you know yeah. tormenting themselves that's right and that's why yeah. it's so obvious and it takes a lot of energy to maintain that facade too yeah, yeah and you're tired a lot because mm-hmm. you're just keeping it up yeah and the worst thing people can say is come on snap out of it you know yeah. people would say that to me and i'd, I'd see the red mist i'd go oh what is grab you by the throat now yeah <laughs> 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 um, you did mention how tough it was leaving the cops and, uh, you mm. know, I think that, uh, you know, tied up with that identity problem that everyone faces on the after they get out. But uh, that horrible saying that there's nothing more X than an X, uh, copper, I, I know in all the jurisdictions that I've ever heard, it's yeah. it's not – I thought it was just a New South Wales thing, but I've, I've heard it more and more times uh, lately in other jurisdictions. How did you find that? Yeah, look, I, I hate that term too, mate. And, and you know, I, I think fairly quickly after I left, I refused to refer to myself as an ex. I referred to myself as a former um, because I was a former cop, not an ex. An ex to me yep. denotes someone who's been kicked or because or they've gone to yeah. jail or they're, or they're scumbags. Um, yep. I was lucky. I, I, was, uh, I went into corporate. Um, I was in a, a senior role where I was travelling. So I travelled back to Brisbane a lot. Um, and, mate, I was really lucky. I was still, and I still am part of the network. I was never treated as an ex or uh, or someone who'd betrayed by leaving. Um, I had a lot of good, loyal mates, and so I never experienced that. I remember going back to the, when we still had a police club um, in Brisbane, oh, it would have been six months, maybe 12 months after I left, and I was up there having a beer with the, the guys and they're talking about a confidential operation. I said, hey, boys, I'm not in the job anymore. You know that, don't you? <laughs> and one of them looked at me and said, Banksy, you're one of us. You'll always be one of us now. Shut up. I went, yeah. okay. Okay. Um, so I was I was lucky. Yeah. It's not uh, yeah. It's not a common story, I think. No, that's very rare, I think. Um, mm. You know, certainly the 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 – that 
exclusion that you feel I, th- I think is uh, palpable for for most people. I think you know, after they've left, but it's it also you know that identity that loss of identity. Like you've probably been lucky in the sense that you've still been able to, you know, keep in those social circles that's mm. kept you in touch with that. Whereas you know a lot of people that leave leave and you know unfortunately can't or won't look back and you know that you find yourself all of a sudden out in the big bad world with no not that identity that you were issued you know 20 years mm. ago um and lived every day of your life since uh yeah, yeah so it can be a can be a battle oh, another yeah. battle on top yeah. of the other ones <laughs> yeah for sure mate people just don't understand it unless they've been in it um mm. and and i'm sure that both of you have, have caught the Oh, you know, well, I had a cousin who got a traffic ticket and this bloke was really rude, so I think all cops are bastards. And you go, oh, yeah. God. Okay. Yeah. Do I engage Everybody in this go to. You yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, this biggest problem like we have, um, obviously, with um, police veterans, like they're just forgotten about and mm. we need to do so much more for, obviously, you know, people who've retired and, you know, as I said, you're, you're big big on the um, the veteran scene um, promoting um, for Queensland to get police veterans as well. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I said they've got them in Victoria, but they should have them nationally. Uh, everyone should have like a police veterans program going, but we just seem to don't have that. Oh, I agree, mate. I agree. There's so many broken people out there who, who again, feel isolated and a lot of the, you know, nothing so X is next, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. So they're not engaging um, with other former cops or retired cops or veterans. Um, and and they feel disenfranchised, et cetera. So my experience with Police Veterans Victoria has been the veterans that I've been asked to to provide support to are overwhelmed by the fact that someone has just sat and had a coffee with them. Mm-hmm. Overwhelmed by it. They go, oh, it's so good to be included again. Because as, as you've said, Matt, it's it's loss of identity. You know, mm-hmm. you it's it's an identity in your life that um when you're, you're a cop, you're on 24 hours a day because you're carrying your badge 24 hours a day as you're required, all that stuff. So when you leave, suddenly that identity is completely gone. And and I found I was with a bunch of corporate senior executives who climb over each other's dead, bleeding bodies to get to the next promotion. <laughs> Ain't a lot of camaraderie out there. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and I was used to working with people who had your back. Not all of them, but the majority of them did. Um and so that, that was a cultural change, Jesus. And and then um, I was, again, pretty lucky because down here uh, I, I was in a network of, of detectives that I'd met variously through the years. So they had, uh, they'd have a black tie Friday the 13th lunch that I'd get invited to. They'd have other events I'd get invited to. Um, so I, I didn't feel it as keenly or feel the loss of identity as keenly but I certainly found it. But there are veterans out there who decide to move and a lot of a lot of people, as we know with PTSD, want to get the hell out and away. Mm. Um, yeah. They're isolated and they just, they've just they got no support system. The ADF um, deserve every support they get. Um, you know, that's all fantastic. But in reality, only 3% of the ADF actually ever see combat. It's frightening. But the rest of them are also entitled to the same lifelong support. Um, that those who, who see combat are, you know, the yeah. gold cards, the the psychological assistance, all of that stuff. And the problem with policing getting to that stage is that we're all we're all a disparate bunch. So we're all state and federal, you know, state and territories and federal. So yeah. we don't actually approach this with one voice. And, yeah. and I think it's high time 
we got one voice about the need that, that police and first responders, um, including the hose fairies, I suppose, even though they sleep on night work. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on that. <laughs> but, but all first responders need the same support and it wouldn't cost a lot of money. You no. know? So I, I, I see my shrink, it costs me 450 bucks, I think, for a session. I might get some back on Medicare. Um, I, you know, do whatever I do and I'm happy to pay that as long as I can still afford it because it it benefits me. But I've got mates in the ADF who've served overseas um, who have all of that paid for. Yeah. And and as, as they've said to me, and I totally agree, Cops are on every time they're at work. So the ADF, um, and you talk to any veteran, any ADF veteran, they'll say the same thing. They're trained. They have intel. They know exactly what they're getting into. They prepare, 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 um, and, then they're, and then they're into it. Cops go to work, sort of like my experience with the shoddy at six or eight weeks service or whatever it was. <laughs> Cops go to work, and it happens. Well, the potential is there every damn day of their service. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yet at the end of all of that service, you kick to the curb with no ongoing support. So that's why we've, we've come across some veterans, Milne, that are living in their cars. You yeah. know, some veterans who've got major alcohol and drug issues and, and um, have no family to support them. And it's heartbreaking. And th- these are men and women who've served often for bloody 30 to 40 years, you yeah. know, looking after yeah. the community. And it's just, it's, it, I just think it's appalling. So, so the more of us who can fight this, and, and I think one voice, which is why the, the heart-to-heart walk is so important, with that uh, at the end of it, the petitioning, petitioning to Canberra, mm. I think is, is vital. Um, and getting the attention of politicians is like persuading a boss that your idea is actually his idea, so he says yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's got to be something. It is. It is really like it's. It's virtually never going to get anywhere, is it? If if everyone's fighting these little little scuttle battles in each state and territory, and Mm. and unfortunately, half the time the legislation's a little bit different for workers' compensation or whatever. So there's all these complexities. But I mean, it's a national problem, and I, I the one thing I can't get my head around is if every state and territory struggling with the same thing, which they are. When, why is that not by default a, a federal issue to start to coordinate the, the solutions to? It's just crazy to think that each state's been, you know, left to fight its own little battles and it's the same battle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. And that's why we're just pushing so hard, obviously, you know, with the, the 14 recommendations of the 2019 Senate Committee report. Because, mm. you know, they supported one and noted a few then took the others on principle, but they just left them by the wayside for the last four years. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, because it's yeah. almost as if they're hoping we go away. Yeah. It, it does feel like that, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So the work you're doing with PVV down in uh, down in Victoria, um, can you just give us a run? Like PVV is probably um, not, not a real well-known concept to the other states and territories, I'm sure, because no, there's no, not a New just, South Wales variant of it. No. I mean, we've got other – there's certainly support groups and things like that, but nothing is overtly, mm. um, I suppose, declaring that it's there for those policing veterans. And, and, and it's not just the policing issue too, because I know some of the AMBOs and that that go to this PTSD group I go to and uh, fireys that I've spoken to all sort of go through similar-ish post-service yeah problems um 
and 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 identity issues and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, just give us a rundown on PVV. Mate, uh, PVV started I think about five years ago, um, and it wasn't really well run. It's it's really hit its straps uh, with the appointment of a CEO, Dave McGowan, who's a uh, Vic Pole veteran. And Dave was in uh, oh, some heavy place. He was in the armed robbery squad. Um, he left and joined the ANZ Bank as head of the global investigations team. And I think he was at the ANZ for about 20, 25 years or something. Um, he then, he left the ANZ. He was looking for something to get his teeth into and grab this. And he's really kicked it ahead. So Police Veterans Victoria, PVV, it exists, and, and this is an issue, it has no funding. So, you know, we rely on, on police members' contributions out of their pay packet, um, mm. some corporate events, some donations. We're trying to get corporates to donate. But we exist um, to provide support to any police veteran, whether it be one day or 47 years, um, who is struggling, yeah? And the struggling can be either... Um, emotional or mental health or or whatever or just loss of identity they they contact um, us through our website and say okay my name is is x really having some problems anyone i can talk to and at the moment i think we've got 57 trained peer support officers who are all volunteers oh. um like myself so we do a two-day course under um the the psychologist um with the pvv and uh, she's paid for by by uh, Vicpol. We have office space provided by Vicpol at police headquarters. Right. Um, we have, uh, I think, the computers, et cetera, provided by Vicpol. So the CEO's salary and the marketing person's salary are paid for out of what, what contributions we can raise. And so what will happen is someone comes in and so Rebecca, who's the, um, the social worker psychologist, She'll look at the person's profile and go, okay, um, and for instance with me, there might be someone who's struggling who's been in a gunfight or loss through that or whatever. She'll ring me and say, have you got any capacity to go and talk to this person? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'll contact them, I'll go out, I'll sit and have a cup of coffee and go, how's it all going for you? And I'm not a clinician, but I have enough lived experience and, and that, that training component just to identify how they are. Now, if I think that they really need help, I can refer it back to PVV and VicPol will give them free counselling so we have access to that. So it's a really good relationship with VicPol. Um, if I if I think that they're in danger of, uh, of killing themselves, because as we know, it's not self-harm. Self-harm is not killing yourself. Self-harm is cutting yourself or something. But if I think they're suicidal, I can actually take steps to, to put an intervention in place. But often... Yeah. Often it's simply sitting and having a chat to someone and the response, as I said before, is, is amazing to see. Mm. You get someone suddenly starts to smile again because mm. they're talking to someone who understands them. You know, you talk about the job or whatever or in a, in a situation where someone's been in a shooting, I'll say, look, this is what happened to me. This is what I was going through. If you're going through it, mate, you're not alone. You're not imagining it. It's, it's actually a condition. Now, this is what helps me. Um, you know, there are other people we can talk to, whatever. I've actually had someone come along with me to a martial arts session to say, I've said, this, this works for me, come along. And he's gone, yeah, okay, and, uh, and then has taken it up. So it's really about conversation and, and human connection because, you know, 
if if people get back into being part of a tribe and they feel connected and and um yeah part of something then that goes a huge way to um to helping them just having that self-worth again yeah feeling like they're worth something yeah yeah so So tell us a little bit about your sporting uh like you're obviously been doing martial arts for a very long time Mm. um Give, give us an idea of how important that's been, I suppose, uh, to help you carry on uh, yeah, throughout mate, your career and during those hard times. Good question. Um, look, I, I I didn't train for quite a long time. Um, so when I was in the corporate world, I was running, um, I was doing gym work, I was, you know, doing something. I needed to exercise to get some, what I understand now, dopamine and some serotonin. Um, I'd get twitchy if I didn't do something. And uh, and probably, what am I now, 64, so it would have been 12 years ago, um, I took my daughters to a martial art, to a karate dojo because I wanted them to train for self-defence and self-esteem and so on. And, uh, and I sat there and watched it and thought, geez, I miss this. So yeah. I went up to the, the sensei and said, oh, look, you know, am I, in your opinion, too old to start training? And, uh, and he looked at me and went, well, you, know, you can come along and give it a go. So I went along and after the first lesson, he said, Jesus, mate, you've trained before. And I said, yeah, I have not for a long time. He went, right, well, um, let's get you into it again. So um, then did a black belt grading, I think, I don't know, four or five years after that. Um, And then did a second hand grading uh, a few months ago. And I'm training in another dojo, et cetera. So what it does for me is probably twofold. Um, It's brought me back into something that I absolutely love. When I have bad days and I get in my car and I drive to a dojo, put my gear on and walk in through the front door, it all goes away. I don't know what happens. It just all goes away because I'm back with my tribe. I'm back with like-minded people. I've got my purpose again. Train hard, go home, everything's good. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, right. Um, So it's a key component of, of my program going forward yeah and yeah. what it what it also does is there's a guy in one of the dojos i train in who's uh who was is a veteran cop then joined the fireys um and really struggles really struggles and i would have been maybe six months ago after i was chatting away because part of what we do is is occasionally i sense i'll say let's have a conversation about how we're all going um and he loves me chatting about it because i'm so open about it and after that, this guy came up and said, mate, can I can I spend a half an hour with you? Sure. So this is what I'm feeling. So I'm going through. What do you think? You know, am I weak? And I went, wow, let's have a chat about that. So now um, he's a different guy. Right. You know, different guy. He's, he's open about it. He understands it's not him. He understands it's experience, that trauma scarred him, and he's now working through it. So, you know, all of that's really important. Um, it is, yeah, yeah. It's actually yeah. I found it as a bit of a barrier because there's there's sort of social anxieties and not wanting to go and you know trying to isolate myself for so long. I think it crept into my um, just my entire mannerisms and, mm. and and my every every my routines were all all about how do I avoid you know yeah, being around right. people how do i avoid any type of environment like that but when you you talk to i've had the opportunity to talk to lots of people over the last you know year and a half or so about the benefits of it and it's it's amazing how um, you know even during their career how it balances i guess 
the pressures and the impacts of work, people with those sort of activities in the background um, often self-manage a lot better. Mm. Whereas, uh, unfortunately, people like me that, you know, retract and, um, yeah, just sort of avoid it all, I think you're doing yourself it's, – it's not the right thing to do. You need to, you need to reconnect with those, as you said, like those tribes or, you know, whatever that sort of social purpose is, is yeah, try not to – Try not to shut yourself out of it all. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's and it's, place, it's tough. It's tough, mm. mate. Um, I mm. prefer to be by myself. Mm. You know, that's I, maybe that's why I took up running because I enjoyed running by yeah, myself. Right. I hate running with other people. Um, yeah. Well, and now I'm at the age where I hate running. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but just you know, cycling or, or whatever. I just see it's so important. The exercise component is so important. So yeah. mindfulness, meditation, nutrition, absolutely, but exercise is key to get yeah. that, that naturally occurring uh, serotonin, you know, and, and pump it through. Because for me, um, exercise, a lot of people hate exercise and I understand that. But when you get to a stage where you finish, you feel great. Yeah. yeah and the more you do it, the more energy you'll have and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, um, exactly. You know, and it it's just and even it's yeah. just mindfulness, mate. Being it, you know, if if someone listening to this goes, "Oh, I can't run," fuck that. Well, go mm. for a walk. Go go for a walk. Take your headphones out and listen to the birds chirping. Mm. Listen, just get in touch with what's around you, and and practice that mindfulness. And mindfulness, not some esoteric Indian yeah, yogi. Yeah. It's just about you know listening to the world yeah. and going, "Wow, yeah. the sky's beautiful today." Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's all part of it. I reckon. Like it's tough being um obviously being alone, but obviously you know, you've got a family as well. How did you, your family go dealing with all this stuff? Oh, whew, mate, when I was in the middle of all my stuff, God, I, I, I'm um, I'm eternally thankful um, to my wife and my kids. My kids don't remember it as badly as I do, and, and it could well be that I've, I've enhanced it in my head. I don't know. I was never violent, God, but I just had so much short-term anger, you know, if... Um, in the days of landlines, if someone would ring the landline at 6 o'clock or 6.30 at night, I'd get infuriated. You know, how dare they ring when we're having dinner? How dare they ring up? You know, just that crazy stuff. You know, someone ring the doorbell, my response would be, who the hell's that? You know, and and I look back on that now and think, God, that was a constant in my life. So when my girls were growing up, one of the heartbreaking things I remember is I was sitting um, in my study doing something and my little girl came in, she might have been eight, and she had her hands sort of ringing together and said, oh, Daddy, excuse me, when you've got a spare minute, can you help me with my trike or something? You know, so she obviously had grown up in an environment where Dad's just busy and he's angry and he's doing stuff. Um, so that was, that was part of writing, writing things down. So when I started actually writing um, a couple of chapters to give to them to help them understand why I was a bit, well, why I was so screwed up um yeah. then it morphed into books and then it you know it was picked up by publishers etc and and for me it was a major part of my catharsis and recovery to write my stuff down yeah. never intended yeah. it to be published 
but yeah. um, writing it. And so both my girls read both books, and and they both say to me, "It wasn't that bad, Dad. It wasn't as bad as you remember." Right. You know? yeah. Um, yeah, but I I still feel a lot of guilt for it and for my behaviours. Um, you know, like <laughs> this isn't funny, but it sort of is. Uh, I'd go out for a lunch with uh, with some mates, and both my daughters would take bets on what time I'd get home. Midnight, one a.m., two a.m. You know, God, <laughs> Jesus. Um, and, and that was part and parcel. I mean, that's part and parcel of the cops as well as we know. But yeah, you know, and um, and and we talk often about it now. You know, I'm I'm so bloody empowered's an overused word, but I'm so empowered now to talk openly to my family about how I feel, um, what I felt then, what I've learnt, you know, um, and, and it's just such a whole refreshing new world. Yeah. But it was tough for them. Yeah, yeah exactly. Sure. I was just going to say, like, obviously, you know, we've got obviously a close friend, um, Alan Kieran, who, who passed away. Um, your wife, Jenny, met him in the academy, is that right? Yeah, she met, she started on her first day. Alan was a squad ahead of her and he was assigned to, show her how to clean the tiles in the gym or the stairs or something with a toothbrush. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the good old days. <laughs> yeah, the good old days, yeah. Because obviously he did um, undercover work as a, down at the wharfs. There was a wharf. Yeah. I remember him yeah. telling me some of the stories he used to tell him about what he did down there. And, and yeah. obviously he had his battles with um, PTSD towards the end of his life. And we had many yeah. conversations about um, what we both went through. And um, it's the same things, obviously, just the, the lack of support and not actually knowing what is going on with yourself yeah. back then. And obviously he went through it for many years and still didn't know he had it. Yeah, he did. And, uh, and he, he was the classic alpha male, tough guy, mm. who found it almost impossible to admit that he was struggling because that just wasn't the facade he put to the world. Yeah. And a lovely, lovely guy. God, we had, a good, we, we had many years of, um, of friendship and uh, always, always look forward to catching up with Al. Um, yeah. But, yeah, you could see it. And and we'd sit on his on the balcony of his beach house down at Phillip Island, drinking red wine, talking about stuff. And he was always more concerned about how I was than he was mm. concerned about himself. Yeah. You know? Same with me. Yeah. yeah. Definitely same with me. Every conversation we have, you like, oh, how you going? How are you feeling? I'd be going, mm. Yeah, I'm okay. How are you going? He go, So how are you going? Like yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, just yeah, totally yeah. And that's what he was like. But he, you know, he was a wonderful man, like really was. Yeah. And he, yeah, he taught was. me so much in the last two years about how to deal with things and just basically talking like our conversations just at a coffee shop we had tremendous conversations about you know what we're going through and how you can re relate to different things through our careers and you know like he had an amazing career as well don't get me wrong but um yeah it's just yeah. amazing what things you have in the past or sometimes come back and bite you in the future and you just don't even know that you you're actually dealing with that sort of stuff yeah for sure mate he, he was a loss to the world yeah, yeah. definitely Obviously, now that they've got a national, especially with uh, mental health, they've got a national commissioner for defence. Obviously, looking into ADF, you know, veteran suicide yep. and that. So, obviously, we've got the walk going on, and obviously, we've got the foundation. Obviously, we're hoping to have in place by the end of the walk. I think it might be time to actually have a, a national commissioner for first responder veteran suicide and and have a look at that and have our have our own sort of commission into that sort of thing as well because um, obviously we're very important. We've got many volunteers. We've got over 400,000 members um, Australia-wide who work in emergency services and first responders. And I think it's uh, time that we actually look at ourselves and start looking for support and resources um, putting it towards them. So Yeah. Couldn't agree more. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's not a – they can't leave that up to the states and territories to do it individually because they'll do it differently and it will never mm. – it'll never mesh in properly, I don't think, if they uh, – unless they get it, you know, have it as a national approach. No, they yeah, do it properly, yeah. collectively. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Let's hope that's an outcome of the uh, the two and a half thousand k walk. <laughs> yeah. 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 Listen, uh, Banksy. Thanks for your time. And man, you've uh, you've had a a hectic career, a crazy career for uh, what a lot of you know uh, current day police officers would uh, think is acceptable. <laughs> you've uh, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty loose there for a while with you. So um, no, wow, what a wild right. ride. I <laughs> don't doubt it. Don't doubt it in those days. But listen, uh, as I as I explained to you at the start, what I was hoping to ask you is the the debrief questions. So I'd love to get your um your take on what you thought what you think worked well for you during your career or your you know, your life generally. What do you think worked well for you? Um, mate, I think the camaraderie, particularly in the cops, worked really well for me. I uh, you know, given that that challenge in childhood I had to be part of a, uh, it's again, not allowed to say it these days, but I will, to be part of a brotherhood was amazing. It was amazing. Um, and, you know, the just the fact that a sense of purpose and a sense of belonging, that was huge. Yeah. Um, yeah, right. Challenging for me in later life because in the corporate world you don't get that. Um, what, what did help me uh, as I went to uni as a mature age student, did an MBA, um, that helped me look at the world a little differently, but um, but certainly lately, you know, being being published and having the opportunity to talk on platforms like this about mental health and uh, and identity is it's also part of my recovery and part of my ongoing recovery. So it's worked really well. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. There's something about talking talking about your story, isn't there? That's uh, mm. it's like a someone taking weights out of your backpack or something. I don't know what it is, but yeah, that's a good analogy. If you look back, can you put your finger on something that you think didn't go so well for you or caused caused your problems along the way? Uh mate, my <laughs> probably my big <laughs> mouth. I I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't stand by and watch stupid decisions being made by people who were in senior positions and I just couldn't shut up about. It. You know, I I challenge it all the time. So I didn't play the political game in the cops. Um you know, it got me the respect of a lot of people for sure, but it certainly marked my cards. I think as far as, as, yeah. far as promotion were concerned, because yeah. um, I just wouldn't put I wouldn't put up with it. You know, I'd call it out, and and I probably still would do that. Yep. Yeah. We even even knowing the limitations it's going to impose on you. Yeah. Yeah. Always challenge stupid decisions to put people's lives at risk for sure. Yeah. yeah. That's going to get people hurt, isn't it? So. Yep. Go yeah. speak up. Well, uh, how old were you when you joined the cops? Sixteen years old. 16 years and nine months, I think. So you as who you are right now, what would you tell that person walking through those gates if you had the chance about what you might do differently this time around? So uh, give, give me, what advice would you give? What advice do differently? Oh, look, I, I don't know that I do too many things differently, mate. The advice yeah, right. I'd give is is never give up on your principles. You know, always, always um, stay true to what you believe is the right thing to do. You know, so people have said to me, geez, how could you resist the, the, the cash that was available, the, you know, raiding druggies' houses with 100 grand in the shoebox, all that sort of stuff. And I've said quite simply, mate, I just, it wasn't me. You know, mm-hmm. I, I I believed if you were a crook, you know, if, or if you, you did something that was like that, you stole money or you sold drugs or whatever, 
then you're spitting on your badge and, and as far as I'm concerned, you're a crook. So yeah. I'd say to that young kid, never, ever give up on your principles. Yeah, right. Maybe yeah. don't be too quick to ju- to criticise senior police in the presence of others. <laughs> <laughs> might be something like change. There you go. A little bit of advice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, choose your feedback cautiously. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it. Yeah, yeah. Pick, your, pick your battles. Now, yeah. <laughs> Now, just before we wrap up today, your book, how do people get in contact with you and, and find oh. your book? Yeah, yeah mate, no, thank you. Um, <clears throat> so the books the books are Drugs, Guns and Lies and uh, Gun to the Head. You don't have to read them in, in order, but probably wouldn't hurt. But you can either get them through uh, Booktopia or uh, any bookstores or Amazon. They're available in Audible. Jeez, I sound like a salesman. I should have been a salesman. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, and my website, if you want, if you'd like an inscribed copy, personally inscribed, jump on my website and I put seconds of thought into it. It's <laughs> www.keithbanks.com.au. Got it. <laughs> Got it. And Instagram, Facebook, all yeah, that sort Instagram, of stuff? Yeah, Instagram, mate. I'm on uh, Instagram, Banksy, B-A-N-K-S-Y 175. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Well, we'll put links in the show notes to all that stuff too. So Thanks, uh, if you didn't have a pen handy, we'll put it in there. And now a little birdie tells me you're a Bruce Springsteen fan. So oh. um, I'm, I'm, we, not a, I'm not a fan, mate. I'm a tragic. Tragic. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to have to pick one of his songs that can go on our Spotify playlist for the walk. So what, oh, we're, yeah. what we're trying to do is put some power, like some songs in there that are – you know, get you through that 39th K towards your uh, yeah. towards your bed for yeah, the night. For sure. So what what's a what's a song for the list? Oh Jesus, right off the top. See, I like the old Springsteen stuff. I would think oh a good song to to keep you up and going is I'm a rocker. I'm a rocker. I'm a Got rocker. It. Very good. Mm. It'll be on the list today. Off the river <laughs> album, I think. Maybe side two. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> My yeah, daughter just bought a I'm record shocked. player. It was amazing. Yeah, it was amazing uh, <laughs> teaching her how how the record player worked and the different speeds and it played yeah. on both sides and how the needle worked. And they were trying to play it with the needle cap on there that it came with. <laughs> you know, and the things just running a muck all over the record. And I'm like, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> anyway, it's a cracker. Anyway, um, hey, look, thanks for your time. Thanks for your story. And thanks for everything that you still do for you know first responders mental health awareness generally and and particularly your work down with pvv at the moment thanks guys been an absolute pleasure um i'm looking forward to the walk and uh and thank you guys for what you're doing as well it's awesome yeah Yeah, thank you thank you coffee soon milney yes mate definitely (laughs) (laughs) See see ya been listening to the heart to heart foundation podcast people on their own journey for the awareness of mental health in our first responders thanks for listening and please remember to support our foundation by going to the webpage at www.hearttoheartwalk.org that's www.heart the number two heartwalk.org or just google it